Hello there. It's Friday, December 23rd, 2005, and this is a show 17. Just a couple days till Christmas. Get ready for a fun show, everyone. Treks in sci fi. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Don't insult my intelligence, Kirk. I'm laughing at the superior intellect. Hello, everyone. It's your host, Rico, for the Trex and Sci Fi podcast. And this is, as I said earlier, show number 17. Usually I get these out around Sunday each week, but I tried or decided to run and record this one a bit early because of the holidays coming up and hopefully、uh, beat、uh, the busyness for the next couple of days that I know that's going to happen, at least for me. I'd like to、uh, first welcome anyone who is new to the podcast. This is the.、Uh, Sci fi, Star Trek,、uh, and collectible podcast. I think it's fairly unique out there. I know there's a lot of other sci fi podcasts and a few Star Trek ones, but what I do generally here、uh, each week, if you're new, is go through、uh, any new, real important sci fi news and discussions about current movies, TV shows. And then I usually go into a、uh, discussion, a、uh, pretty detailed discussion of a Star Trek episode. Or in this case, I'm going to be looking at this week a movie, a Star Trek film.、Uh, my favorite of the Star Trek movies, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, is what I'm going to be discussing、uh, here in a bit in the show. And then I、uh, wrap up things at the end of the show, usually with a collectible,、uh, looking at a、uh, current、uh, collectible. Maybe not that current, but、um, this week's is going to be Master Replica Items. Thermal detonators that were used in the Star Wars films that I'm going to be looking at a couple different variations of those. So that'll be towards the end of the show. So that's kind of what goes on here each week.、Uh, those of you that have listened for quite a while to the show, you know all that already, but I just thought I'd throw that out there for anyone who might be、uh, just listening to this show for the first time today. What I usually like to go through、uh, first is、uh, either email or current sci fi and News, movies, and that. I, there's not a whole lot of current new information to, to talk about this week.、Um, not sure if I've mentioned this before. I think the only thing I wanted to really mention, a couple, two things really, I've got written down.、Um, one, I'm not sure if I've said this, but it's on my forums on the website www.treksf.com or just treksinsci-fi.com. The、uh, discussion and talk right now is that StarTrek.com, the official Paramount website, is going to be shutting down. At the end of 2005. I'm not completely sure this is a complete、uh, confirmed Paramount、uh, official situation or it's, a, it's kind of a little bit of a rumor. I, I think it's fairly official. It's been reported on a number of sites, but it's, it's kind of a little disappointing that it's going to happen for a few reasons. I know there are a lot of fan sites out there, and I even have one, I guess, in a way. Mine is too, but doesn't have a lot of real background and information on Star Trek. but... And I know there's no new series and movies coming. And I, now that I'm thinking about this, I think I did maybe mention this in last week's podcast, but I just wanted to bring it up one more time.、Um, the talk right now is that Eugene Roddenberry,、uh, Gene Roddenberry's son, along with one of the websites,、uh, a recent new, newer website called Trek United, 
are trying to discuss things with Paramount and try to keep the website going. I mean, I find it a pretty good information source. I link it in my uh, podcast notes to the episodes and that. So it'll be kind of uh, disappointing if that does go away. So we'll have to see how that works out. The other bit of news um, is that the only thing really left that's not been put out on DVD for Star Trek over the last few years is the Star Trek animated series. It ran for two seasons in the early 70s. Well, it's officially reported now uh, by Paramount that they are going to be releasing the animated DVDs um, probably towards the end of next year, um, probably mid-summer, you know, maybe to fall, because next year in 2006 is the 40th anniversary of Star Trek since the original series started in 1966. And I think they're going to be planning uh, at least a few events and things, conventions in the summer and that to celebrate that. So we've got that to look forward to, which which I, I like the animated series. I thought they did quite a few really interesting, good episodes. The writing was good. They got all the voices for the actors back. So that that's going to be nice. I do have some of those episodes recorded on videotape, but it's not, not of course, night as nice and convenient as DVDs are. So that'll be fun. Um, the last... Uh, that, well, that's it for the news. The, the next area that I want to talk about, and, and I've got one email that I just want to discuss a little bit, and we'll get to that uh, next. Incoming transmission, Captain. Okay, I got a really uh, nice uh, and fairly detailed and long email from somebody named Chris uh, Young. Hopefully you're listening to the show, Chris. Uh, I wrote you back uh but the, the thing I wanted to mention about Chris's email uh, to me is he lives actually not in the Midwest area where I do, not that far away, but um, it sounds like we had a, a very um, similar uh, upbringing, I guess, with regards to Star Trek conventions, building things and all that. And I'm not going to read all of his email here because it's it's fairly detailed and long, but I just wanted to, uh, to talk about some of the things he brings up. He talked about building... Uh, prop replicas and pieces of the, you know, sets, you know, kind of the bridge pieces like the helm console and that, which actually I, I had, um, well, I've shown before and talked about, I built sort of a mini Spock bridge station that I still have that item. But, but, uh, even when I was younger, I built the helm console that Chekhov and Sulu would sit at and I had kind of a view screen and it was filled with, you know, Christmas lights and twinkle things and switches and I blew quite a few uh, circuit breakers, fuses in, in my uh, parents' house growing up building that stuff. But I learned a lot about carpentry and, and learned a lot about electricity, uh, <laughs> how to wire things the right way. And it was a good time. And it sounds like Chris here has is, is done a lot of those kind of things when he was um, growing up, building props, uh, phasers, communicators, and so on out of, out of whatever he could scrounge up, uh, wire and screen and, and little bits of things all around the house and it was uh you know those those were uh, a lot of a lot of fun in those times I, I when I wrote Chris back I told him you know I these days I don't, I don't seem to have the time to do a lot of building anymore although I have built some things it's usually a couple of projects a year maybe now but the uh, thing I do now which I've talked about on the podcast a lot is is basically just purchasing these things which which you couldn't use you used to not be able to do that you know, the the replicas that Master Replicas and other companies put out these days are, are really top-notch, and they do a great job at creating the piece with electronics sometimes and really making it look uh, like it did on the TV series. So 
Chris, uh, I really uh, enjoyed your email, and I'm going to try. We're going to try to discuss uh, Star Trek sometime, and maybe do some recording of our discussions and get it up on a show. So, Chris, thanks a lot for the email, and I really, really appreciate uh, you listening to the show and your comments about uh, our uh, similar early days of Star Trek going to conventions and recording old Star Trek episodes with cassette tape recorders and things like that. So, thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Len from Jawbone Radio, and whenever I need the latest Star Trek or sci-fi news, I listen to my friend Rick on the Treks and Sci-Fi podcast. Hey, do you think he's going to be talking about Wookiees? Because I love Wookiees. Okay, the uh, the main Star Trek topic for this week, like I said earlier, is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Now, this movie originally came out in the summer, early June of 1982. Uh, gosh, it's... What, 23 years ago now? It seems, uh, I, I mean, I can remember going to the film when it came out multiple times, of course, because this is, um, to me, the definitive best of any of the Star Trek films. Now, I, I talked about all the movies in, in brief before, but and I do enjoy most of them, uh, some more, some less. And But this film, Star Trek II, just to me had everything that a good Star Trek story, and, and certainly for a movie uh, event, needed. Uh, the characters were, were well well written in the, in the film. They, they made sense. They had a good, you know, good things to do, for the, at least for the primary three, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. They had a good antagonist in Khan, and of course... And it was just it was just really well put together. And the the what went on in the storyline, you know, there was a good overall storyline and plot going on. But what went went on with that, you could see how it also in you know kind of impacted the crew of the Enterprise, Kirk and Spock especially, and uh, I guess primarily Captain Kirk. But there was a, a lot going on with him in this movie, and I think that was real interesting. Now, I have this show, uh, this whole podcast today might be a little bit longer because I, I kind of went a little nuts with uh, recording clips from the DVD uh, audio clips. And it's very hard to pick out little parts from Wrath of Khan uh, and, you know, kind of get the essence of the movie in some of these audio clips without kind of almost recording the whole thing. So we'll, hopefully I pick some good ones. Um, a couple other little background tidbits on this that some people may know, some people may not know. Uh, Star Trek One, the the first film, the motion picture, actually did pretty well at the box office. I know people generally don't care for that movie all that much. Found it a little slow, and the overall story was a little bit weak, maybe. But uh, I mean, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, it was the first time Star Trek ended up on the big screen. So, but I, what I wanted to say in regards to that is that what they what they found out in in getting people's reaction was that in, in for Star Trek Two at least, they they felt they needed to kind of go in a much more um, concrete and just you know different direction a different look um a stronger storyline uh, involved the crew a little bit more rather than them just staring at a view screen and at all the pretty colors out there so what happened in under this situation is, is a gentleman named harv bennett came along who was the executive producer slash producer slash whatever uh partial writer i think even on star trek 2 now harv bennett did a lot of television in the in that this era, 70s, 80s, and that. he, uh, But he understood stories, and he understood characters. And this, the way the story basically goes, Harv Bennett was not really into Star Trek. He didn't know Star Trek very well. And basically what he did was take um, almost every episode that he could uh, get at the time 
and watched all of the original series over the course of a few days. And he made a list from those from those stories and from those episodes of what he felt, uh, what episodes kind of could use or deserve some kind of a follow up. And one of the, one of the standouts when he was looking at these episodes for him was the original series episode Space Seed. That episode he felt with the villain of Khan, Khan Noonien Singh, played by uh, excellently excellently played by Ricardo Montalban. He felt that that was a, a perfect villain, a perfect foil, a perfect enemy for Kirk to face off against for a motion picture. And then it, in the course of this, um, you know, events happening and unfolding here, another gentleman came along named Nicholas Meyer. Now, Nicholas Meyer was a, I guess, a fairly strong Star Trek fan. He knew the series. He he was a, a very good uh, director who directed a number of things, one of them... Uh, called Time After Time, I believe is the name of the film. It was sort of an H.G. Wells uh, film in the, I think it came out in the late 70s. I don't know the exact date, maybe 79 or so. But that was a really good movie. He, he knew how to do an action piece. He knew characters. He knew how to make a story interesting with interesting um, character pieces in it. And that's really what the essence of Star Trek II is all about. So I don't want to get into too much of all this before I get into uh, playing some of the clips. But I just wanted to give a little bit of that out information wise oh the other thing last thing i wanted to mention is the dvd that i got uh the clips off of although you won't really be able to tell just from the audio there's a two disc set a a two disc set of i think all the star trek films now and the two disc set is really nice to have because the second disc has a lot of extended and extra features on it including interviews with the primary three of the cast kirk spock mccoy shatner nimoy and divorce kelly they have interviews with them at the time of Star Trek II and also later, um, years later, also had interviews with them. So, And there's a lot of other stuff. There's visual effects, background. Um, there's talk about uh, Star Trek books. There's, um, you know, again, visual effects and, and background information on making the film and a lot of other little goodies on the second disc. And if you're a fan of uh, well, this podcast and Star Trek, I, I highly recommend you pick up the two-disc version of the uh, DVD. They had a one-disc one out originally, and then they've gone back with all the Star Trek films and put out two-disc uh, DVDs of those. So, check those out. The first, the first, uh, bleh, bleh, excuse me, the first clip that I'm going to play for you is the. Um, it's it's a couple minutes long, not all that good, but I wanted to play it anyway because it's kind of fun to listen to. It is the original uh, theatrical trailer uh, or the audio from it for Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Oh, one last thing, I keep saying that. The, the title of the movie, The Wrath of Khan, originally was called um, Star Trek II, The Vengeance of Khan. Now, Star Trek II came out in 1982. Well, there was a movie coming out a year later that was uh, the third of the, the final of the original Star Wars trilogy called Return of the Jedi. Now, the background on that is originally Return of the Jedi was called Revenge of the Jedi, but George Lucas, either through uh, somebody kind of telling him something or whatever came about, he basically realized, well, Jedi don't really get revenge. They don't do that. That's not their thing. So he decided, though, at the time, because it was called originally Revenge of the Jedi, that, well, you know, we're going to have this other this Star Trek movie, another space movie called uh, coming out with this co- title called Vengeance of the Vengeance of Khan. And the titles, they didn't... They were too similar. Vengeance, revenge, blah, blah, blah. So 
I don't think anything really officially legal took place, but there was sort of an agreement that uh, Wrath of Khan would or would be changed to the Wrath of Khan title instead of Vengeance of Khan. And the funny thing about the whole deal is that eventually George Lucas changed uh, Revenge of the Jedi to Return of the Jedi. So it, it kind of became kind of a silly little thing in a way because and I and now everyone's so used to the the name Wrath of Khan, I, I, I think it sounds better that way. Vengeance of Khan sounds kind of lengthy. Wrath, I mean, I don't know. So who knows? what? If it was Vengeance, we probably would have all liked that too. So just a little side note. Now I am going to play that clip of the trailer for Wrath of Khan. Here it is. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round tradition's flames before I give him up. There she is. There she is. Fire! Shield collapsing, Captain. Can you evade their power? A few shots, sir. Not enough against their shields. The base is stubborn. I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. Marooned for all eternity. Buried alive. Buried alive. Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Opens at a theater near you, June 4th. Yeah, it's kind of uh, kind of funny when I listen to the uh, that trailer now. I, I swear that that guy who does the over voice or whatever you call it, the narration voice on, on that trailer is still doing that kind of stuff. I mean, they still have that kind of like, at the edge of the universe is the beginning of vengeance kind of talk. And it, it's uh, it's kind of funny. 20 years hasn't changed a whole lot with uh, movie trailers, maybe. Um, so Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, that was a, a preview that was shown uh, in theaters and a little bit of abbreviated versions of that on TV at the time. Um, I can remember watching some of the early movie review shows when they showed clips, and I was like, oh my gosh, this movie's just going to be awesome. I mean, the effects, they had ILM working on the effects for this film, and it just, uh, I love the new uniforms that they had in Star Trek II. Let's just talk about a little bit of that kind of stuff before we really get into the meat of the movie. Um, this movie, they, they Nicholas Meyer especially, who came in, and he has a, there's a book out, um, can't remember the exact title of it, but you can probably find it on Google or Amazon. But there was a uh, a book that they wrote about 
some of what he put into this film, and he wanted to make this film uh, sort of a the Enterprise and the movie a, a submarine kind of old old uh, style uh, duel of uh, two commanders, like the Japanese and American submarines would have, you know, had they were they going at it in uh, excuse me in World War Two. He he was trying to make a similar kind of situation here with uh, with the Enterprise uh, being in, in a struggle with Khan and you know Kirk versus Khan in this and the look of the movie that the lighting that they used on the sets the the uniforms it, it's a lot more militaristic looking uh, Star Trek than was especially in Star Trek the motion picture which looked like kind of a floating hotel to some degree the uniforms the look of the the ship at the time. And he made the Enterprise, the uniforms, and the interiors a lot more colorful. And I thought for a film, uh, for the film end of it, that that was a you know a perfect idea. I, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know some people like the way this looks, some people don't. But I myself uh, really like what they did here. The the uniforms, the insignias, just everything about this movie works for me. The the way they designed the sets, uh, the effects, the the battles, the the scripts, it just just is really well done. And they, one interesting thing about the extended DVD, the two-disc set that I've got, is it's the director's cut edition of the movie. And they do put in, there are little tiny clips here and there. You know, scenes just have a few little extra words in them. And I, it, it's probably because I'm so used to the original version of Star Trek II, but I find myself really agreeing with the original theatrical cut in other words the, the few minutes that they add to the this theatrical or this sorry excuse me the director's cut it, it really kind of almost takes away from the the movement of the story I, I can see why they trimmed it a bit and it's not a lot that they put in but just little tidbits here and there that they didn't really need to have in there so that's just kind of an aside so that's that's the um kind of my overview of the movie to some degree uh the characters the other the other thing that impresses me in this movie a lot is just how comfortable, uh, especially William Shatner as Captain Kirk and Leonard Nimoy as um, Spock, are in their roles. I mean, there, there's there's some discussion and, and they and they talk in the beginning of the movie. I like how the movie is paced at the beginning, where there's a training mission with uh, Sophic, who's sort of this protege for Mister Spock on board the Enterprise. And how uh, Admiral Kirk now is is kind of the uh, the senior officer inspecting what what Captain Spock is doing and all that. I, I just love the way they they slowly get you into the story while the the crew of the uh, Reliant with Chekhov aboard is off there um, searching for a uninhabited planet and kind of run into Khan. Now um, the next clip the uh, that I'm going to play is uh, near the beginning with. Um, Admiral Kirk and uh, Savick after she's pretty much trashed the simulator and failed the Kobayashi Maru test that she was taking. So listen to this clip. Well, Mr. Savick, are you going to stay with the sinking ship? Permission to speak candidly, sir. Granted. I don't believe this was a fair test of my command abilities. And why not? Because there was no way to win. A no-win situation is a possibility every commander may face. Has that never occurred to you? No, sir. It is not. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life, wouldn't you say? As I indicated, Admiral, that thought had not occurred to me. Well, now you have something new to think about. Carry on. Yeah, that's uh, Kirstie Alley as Lieutenant Savick there in um, 
the role of the protege for Mr. Spock, which Admiral Kirk is just pretty much chopping her down. I mean, uh, she she goofed up, and uh, he's letting her know it. The here's a little background on Kirstie Alley that may be known also. She she growing up, uh, I think she said or I've heard that she has a couple of brothers, one or two at least. Anyway, her family were were huge Star Trek fans of the original series. Her she was uh, basically huge on Mr. Spock and Vulcans and all that. And I don't know exactly how she she hooked up with um, being able to get this role, but her background is she knows Star Trek. She knows the way Vulcans are, and she knows. Um, you know the way they act the way they look and this was one of her earliest roles here and i think her familiarity with star trek shows um a lot uh in this in this part so i think that uh that helped quite a bit now you know maybe some people might think differently but hey it's my podcast so that's my point i think she does a good job in this role and i think uh it was an interesting idea to put a a new character in that kind of situation at the very start of the movie where it kind of appears that she's in command of the Enterprise, but it's, you know, it turns out, of course, it's just a test. So so that's that uh, background there and that information. The uh, The next clip that I'd like to play is between um, Kirk and Spock uh, shortly after that little training mission. So I'll play that for you right now. I am understandably curious. They destroyed the simulator room and you with it. The Kobayashi Maru scenario frequently wreaks havoc with students and equipment. As I recall, you took the test three times yourself. Your final solution was, shall we say, unique. It had the virtue of never having been tried. Oh, by the way, thank you for this. I know of your fondness for antiques. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Message, Spock? None that I'm conscious of. Except, of course, happy birthday. Surely the best of times. Captain Spock, Captain Spock, space shuttle leaving in 15 minutes. Where are you off to now? The Enterprise. I must check in before your inspection. And you. Home. Yeah, that's a that's a really good scene between uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner. You, you can just tell in, in Kirk's voice at the end of that scene, you know, he's he's not really in the action anymore. You know, Spock has his crew of cadets training them and... You know, even though he's not out there, as Dr. McCoy calls it at one point, hopping galaxies, uh, he's still involved pretty strongly with Starfleet. Kirk's an admiral. You, you get the idea that he's kind of a, he's turned into what he never really wanted ever to be, which was a, a desk-bound paper pusher kind of guy. And as Spock says, and I think I have that clip to play uh, shortly here, uh, that is not Kirk's destiny. That is not what Kirk is built for. And it's uh, obviously getting to him. It's his birthday in this film. At the beginning, Dr. McCoy gets him a couple of gifts that, uh, it, you know, one of them is some Romulan ale, which is kind of funny. And the other one is uh, some reading glasses because Kirk is starting to need glasses. He's aging, and, and they don't make, they don't try to hide that in this movie, which is another great point about it. You know, he's getting older. There's younger people trying to take over running uh, the starships and. He um, he's sort of being faced with his own kind of mortality and what uh, you know. How is he going to deal with that? Is he is he going to fight it? Is he going to try to continue the way he used to be? Is he going to sort of adapt and learn from what he's done? It's just that all. 
it's an interesting time for him. And what happens in this story in this in this movie is that he, through what he goes through, realizes that uh, he does still want to make a difference. He he does doesn't want to be uh, just an admiral at a desk for the rest of his career. So so that's uh, that's some good stuff there. Okay, the the next clip I'd like to play is where now we're getting into the story where Chekhov on the Reliant and his captain uh, are have beamed down to a planet um, in the SETI Alpha system, trying to find a planet for the Genesis device, which uh, which we'll talk about here in a second or two. And uh, Chekhov finds something that uh, he's a little surprised about. Here, play this for you now. Patni Bay. Patni Bay. Oh no. We've got to get out of here now. Damn. What hurry. About, what, what about the Never mind board? it. Hurry. Hurry. Check off. What's the matter with you? Check off. Come on. Where hurry. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, Commander Chekhov there, he's not uh, he's not too excited about running into what he remembers about the Botany Bay, which was the ship that uh, they found Khan and his followers on in the original series episode Space Seeds. So Chekhov uh, realizes this. Now, the discrepancy in this situation is th- the following, and a lot of people out there will know about this. In the original series, um, Spacey took place in season one, and Chekhov was not a uh, part of the cast. Walter Koenig was not part of um, the crew of the Enterprise and the cast at that time. So when Khan meets up with him, it's it doesn't really ring true and make sense if you're real, real familiar with the original series that he knows him. Now, the the sort of outside storyline that, that is usually tossed around or idea that, that it is um, going is that Chekhov was indeed on the Enterprise during that time, we just never saw him as, as the audience uh, watching Star Trek. He was in a different role. He wasn't on the bridge at that time in the navigator position. So, you know, there, there's this uh, joking story they tell at conventions, especially Walter. I've heard him say, well, you know, one time, uh, you know, he was, um, Khan ate some really bad food aboard the Enterprise when he was on there and ran into the, the head, into the bathroom, and uh, the only stall was being used. And out, uh, and a few minutes later, Khan really needs to use the uh, the bathroom, and uh, out Chekhov pops, you know, and uh, Khan gives him kind of a dirty look, and he says something like to the order or to him, like, uh, oh, what is your name? And he says, yeah, I'm Chekhov, and he's like, oh, Mr. Chekhov, I will always remember you for this, and he dashes into the stall. So, you know, that's the joking convention story that gets tossed around. But the idea about it is, is that, you know, Khan obviously ran into other people, other uh, crewmen on the Enterprise when he was aboard, and he could certainly have run into uh, Chekhov. You just didn't see it on screen. So, you know, it's one of those things they kind of make up to uh, to go along with um, that they kind of goofed up in the movie. I mean, if it would have been Sulu, uh, Uhura, somebody else there, Dr. McCoy even, or whatever, that would have made a little more sense. But, you know, for the storyline, it really doesn't make that much difference. Now... The next clip I want to play, it's rather long, but I think I'm going to play the whole thing. It's a couple of minutes, so, but the, I think it's important stuff is where um, once uh, Chekhov and uh, Captain Terrell meet uh, Khan on the planet, it gives you some background information, and it gave the audience at the time background information on Khan and, and what he's all about. So listen to this. I never thought to see your face again. Chekhov, who is this man? 
criminal, Captain. A product of late 20th century genetic engineering. What do you want with us? Sir, I demand of you... You are in a position to demand nothing, sir. I, on the other hand, am in a position to grant nothing. What you see is all that remains of the ship's company and crew of the Botany Bay. Marooned here 15 years ago by Captain James T. Kirk. This is the you men and women, you have a catch and cat. Save your strength, Captain. <laughs> These people had sworn to live and die at my command 200 years before you were born. Do you mean he never told you the tale? To amuse your captain, no? Never told you how the Enterprise picked up the Botany Bay lost in space from the year 1996. Myself and the ship's company in cryogenic freeze. I've never even met Admiral Kirk. Admiral. Never told you how Admiral Kirk sent 70 of us into exile on this barren sand heap with only the contents of this cargo base to sustain us. You lie! And City Alpha 5 there was life! A fair chance! This is City Alpha 5! Seti Alpha 6 exploded six months after we were left here. The shock shifted the orbit of this planet and everything was laid waste. Admiral Kirk never bothered to check on our progress. Yeah, there's uh, Ricardo Montalban playing uh, the role of Khan again, as he did in the original series episode Space Seed. Ricardo Montalban in the role of Khan is just perfect. I mean, again, it's a role that's been established for so long, it's hard to imagine anybody else in that part, but he is, uh, he just chews it up, and I, I just love the way he does the role. I mean, you can really believe he's some kind of genetically engineered uh, human, and he has an ego to match and ambition and especially I think in Space Seed and, and come to think of it, it would have been probably made more sense to do that episode. Take a look at that episode before I did Star Trek 2, but eh, maybe next week or the week after. Uh, I'm not decided yet. So, um, But anyway, Ricardo Montalban in this part I think is, is, is dead on. I think he does a great job. And uh, that scene really shows it. And, and it was a good way to... Um, give the audience some exposition about what went on if they didn't know the story where uh, Chekhov is there with his uh, new captain. So Khan's explaining the whole thing about how Kirk marooned him, even though the idea in Space Seed was that Kirk was putting him on a planet that, that there was, you know, a decent chance to survive, uh, sort of like the continent of Australia was in, in, in history. And Spock even mentioned something at the end of the original Space Seed episode about, you know, hey, maybe it would be interesting to go back and check on what happens with Khan on this on this planet that they leave him on. But they didn't realize at the time that the other planet in the system was going to explode and mess up their, their ecosystem where they were left and basically 
turn it into a real fight for survival. And you find out also that Kurt, or sorry, Khan, Kirk, you find out about Khan's wife. Uh, you know, he takes uh, Lieutenant uh, Marla MacGyvers, who's this sort of historian in the original episode, along with him to, to SETI Alpha 5. And that you find out in this, they don't really reference her name at all, but you imagine that he ends up marrying her and that takes her as his wife. But she is dead now. She was killed uh, by these these SETI eels that they use to um, the little larvae that are on them. They use them to control uh, Terrell and Chekhov in this movie. But you end up, you know, you, that's not really hugely important. Well, it is to the story. But um, what I'm trying to say is Khan blames Kirk for the death of his wife and for what it's done to his people and everything like that. So he is mad. He is, he wants Admiral Kirk badly and he's using check off in any means necessary and then of course he learns about genesis which is a whole the other whole section of what's going on in this film where dr marcus and her son and and the the people on regula is it regular whatever the space station that they're doing all this testing on a planet um they uh they learn about genesis con does and that that leads into a whole other area so that that leads to the next clip that I'm going to play, which is between um, David, who you find out, uh, which everyone out there listening to this knows, David turns out to be Kirk's son. So, and but he doesn't realize that until later in the movie. But this there's a quick little clip near the beginning of the film here between um, David and Carol that uh, is kind of I always get a kick out of it because of their uh, referencing uh, to uh, Captain Kirk. So listen to this. What is it? Every time we have dealings with Starfleet, I get nervous. We are dealing with something that could be perverted into a dreadful weapon. Remember that overgrown boy scout you used to hang around with? That's exactly the kind of man... Listen, kiddo. Jim Kirk was many things, but he was never a boy scout. Yeah, it's a nice little scene. Nice little scene there between uh, David and Carol Marcus. Uh, BB Bish is playing uh, Carol Marcus, and Merritt uh, Buttrick playing um, David. And then, unfortunately, both of them have passed away now. But um, this, they, they fit the parts real well. I think uh, they did a good job in this film, and it, it uh, especially when Carol and uh, Kirk meet up later on, and how David reacts to the situation and all that. It's 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 well done. It's real. It's real good. I think. The um, so that they are working on the Genesis device, which Khan also finds out about, which is uh, just to bring everyone, you know, remind them. Which again, you might not need. Um, Genesis is basically life from lifelessness. Uh, it's the idea is it's it's sort of a massive terraforming device. You could shoot it at a moon, uh, another lifeless body out in space, and it could take the matter that's there, generate almost its own little mini sun, and create a. Uh, a planet that could be habitable uh, with uh, any form of life you you know anyone would want to put on it. The um, the odd thing I always find about terraforming stories and ideas like this are that they, you know they got starships that can go warp speeds, they can get between um, planetary systems very very fast, and it, it's hard for me to kind of swallow a little bit of well, aren't there plenty of planets out there that people could live on or animals could live on and so on and so forth? Do they really have to go through the technology and effort and, and all that to to terraform i i don't know maybe maybe you know if you want to have three or four earth type planets in a system 
I, maybe this this could be useful. But anyway, it's not really that critical. I just uh, I always found that part a little bit kind of hard to understand with uh, ships that could uh, travel the way the Enterprise and other uh, ships in the Federation can travel. Seems like terraforming planets wouldn't be so important anymore. But um, but anyway, that's what Genesis is, and that's what Khan finds out about, and he's after both that and uh, Admiral Kirk. On that uh, on that note, I'm going to play now a uh, Kirk decides he needs to inform uh, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy about what Genesis is all about. And there's a scene in his quarters where he, he plays a tape, and they it goes over uh, Carol's findings and her information on Genesis, and then this uh, clip that I'm going to play now is... McCoy and Spock debating the the ethics of the whole Genesis idea and development. So listen to this. What if this thing we use where life already exists? It would destroy such life in favor of its new matrix. Its new matrix? Do you have any idea what you're saying? I was not attempting to evaluate its moral implications, Doctor. As a matter of cosmic history... It has always been easier to destroy than to create. Not anymore. Now we can do both at the same time. According to myth, the Earth was created in six days. Now watch out. Here comes Genesis. We'll do it for you in six minutes. I do not dispute that in the wrong hands... In the wrong hands? Would you mind telling me who's of the right hands, my logical friend? by any chance in favor of these experiments. Gentlemen, gentlemen, this isn't... Really, Dr. McCoy, you must learn to govern your passions. They will be your undoing. Logic suggests... Logic? My God, the man's talking about logic. We're talking about universal Armageddon. You green-blooded, inhuman... Bridge to Admiral Kirk. Admiral, sensors indicate a vessel in our area. Closing fast. What do you make of her? It's one of ours, Admiral. It's reliant. Reliant. That's a good scene there. The you do if you're real familiar with this movie and uh, the dialogue in that scene. There are a couple little lines in there uh, that are uh, added for this director's cut. They they add, the scene's a little bit longer. A couple lines. Uh, one with McCoy uh, saying whose hands would this belong or work with and and so on. But anyway, the. The situation now is, is they know about the Genesis device, and obviously the the side effect of why that uh, Chekhov and the crew of the Reliant were looking for a lifeless planetary body to, to test it on was, or is that the if the Genesis device is used on some kind of a planet uh, or a area that's uh, already inhabited with with people, with animals, with whatever plants, that it would destroy that the any life on that. Uh, planetary body in favor of its new matrix, as Mr. Spock calls it. So it, it's a terrible weapon, obviously, uh, on top of the fact that it could sort of terraform a planet, but it also could destroy life if there is already life there. And that's, of course, what Khan wants the thing for and what they're trying to stop him from getting. The um, But they haven't really met him yet in the, at this point. The the side thing on that is is this whole their debate about whether they have the ability and to play God and you know terraform things and all that. But that we're not going to get into that too too much right now. I just wanted to uh, play that clip because I like the I always like the banter between uh, Doctor McCoy and Mister Spock. Mister Spock trying to show the logic of his, of uh, whatever it happens to be, even if it isn't maybe ethical so much. 
you know, like a, a cloning situation. You could, you could debate the logic of, of having uh, the ability to clone things, but the ethics of it is a whole other issue. So now we're going to get into, of course, Kirk meeting up with Khan. The, the Reliant is coming. Khan is aboard, although Kirk is not aware of that yet. And we're going to play a clip where they um, they first become, uh, they're first attacked by uh, Khan. So listen to this. Okay, excuse me, the uh, the clip I'm going to play here is after the first attack by Khan where um, Khan contacts uh, through the view screen, uh, through the communications, and, and lets Kirk know who it is who's attacking him. So listen to this. Khan. You still remember, Admiral. I cannot help but be touched. I, of course, remember you. What is the meaning of this attack? Where is the crew of the Reliant? Surely I have made my meaning plain. I mean to avenge myself upon you, Admiral. I've deprived your ship of power, and when I swing around, I mean to deprive you of your life. But I wanted you to know first who it was who had beaten you. Come. If it's me you want, I'll have myself beamed aboard. Spare my crew. I make you a counter-proposal. I'll agree to your terms if... If... In addition to yourself, you hand over to me all data and material regarding the project called... Genesis. Genesis? What's that? Don't insult my intelligence, Kirk. Give me some time to recall the data on our computers. I give you 60 seconds, Admiral. thing i like about uh that clip is how matter of factly khan just uh tells kirk that well i am going to avenge myself upon you he, he you know it's not even like he's all worked up about it he's just like it's like somebody putting on their socks or something you know khan's just telling him well you know i'm here for you kirk and i'm going to destroy you your ship whatever um and then i might you know go out for dinner later or something like that i mean he's just uh he is so convinced and he is so certain of his ability to do what he wants to do that he doesn't feel the need to to get all worked up over it. And that, that proves to be actually kind of his undoing a little bit, his overconfidence to some degree, uh, Khan's overconfidence uh, in what he knows. And that leads to one of the coolest parts of probably any Star Trek movie, TV series, to me at least, is... Uh, how Kirk his, and his knowledge of starships and, and Starfleet and the Federation is is a little bit better than, you know, the superior intellect of Khan, Nooney, and Singh. So we'll play uh, what Kirk does uh, rather than beam over, actually, to the Reliant and, and give Khan everything on Genesis, what he does in response to uh, Khan's demands there. So listen to this clip. I see your point. Stand by to receive our transmission. Soon, lock phasers on target and await my command. Phasers locked. Time's up, Admiral. Here it comes. Now, Mr. Spock. Sir, our shields are dropping. Raise them. I can't! 
Where's the override? The override! Fire! Fire! Great scene. That scene is so cool. I, I Every time I see it, I just love it. It's, uh, you know, Khan's there panicked, and, you know, he's looking for the override, and Kirk's blasting him, and they, they get the drop on him and have to retreat. So that's good good stuff there. Uh, just shows that Kirk still has it, and even though he gets sort of complimented at the end of that scene, you know, he says, uh, you know, don't compliment me. I, I, I screwed up, you know. He... He just as a you know they were approaching the Reliant. Uh, Savic reminds him that they should they should be prepared. They should have their shields up when communications haven't been established. You you go under the assumption that there could be a you know something dangerous or a problem. And Kirk just says, "Nah, no, nah, I'm not going to listen to you." And it, and it and it almost costs him the Enterprise. So so that's good. That's good. Uh, good scene there. Okay. the The next clip is one of the classics of this movie. Uh, where Kirk utters the the classic con phrase, and uh, it's but it, there's a lot of good stuff leading up to that. Even uh, basically, Kirk and uh, a landing party with McCoy, uh, they've gone down to um, the the planetoid that the space station was orbiting that was working on Genesis, and David and Carol are down there, and they find uh, Chekhov and Terrell and and. Kirk uh, is talking to Khan over a communicator and trying to bait Khan into coming down. Now, in, in the original storyline for this movie, there was going to be a scene where, where Khan was going to take the bait and, and, and go down there, and they were going to fight each other, kind of like Kirk does with the Klingon in the next film, and they were going to kind of duke it out like they did in um, the original Space Seed episode. And then, you know, Khan would get the drop on Kirk, he'd get Genesis and get back to uh, the Reliant. Now, you notice in this movie that you know Khan and Kirk never really are face to face with each other, and I think that uh, it was kind of a wise choice that they didn't bother with the whole fight scene. They didn't really need to do it, you know. Basically, Reliant just just beams up the information, beams up the Genesis torpedo, and they don't need to uh, fight it out. And so, you know, that really makes more sense um, because Khan should be smart about it, and he shouldn't have to bother to go down there and do that. Doesn't take the bait exactly. Eventually, he does though. So we're going to play the clip now where uh, Kirk is uh, baiting uh, Khan. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive, buried alive. Yes, that's Admiral Admiral Kirk with the largest uh, set of lungs and voice in the galaxy. Khan! Oh, yeah, good good stuff. It's amazing how how many different TV shows, movies, everyday, whatever, references to that one little uh, piece of dialogue have, have made it, uh, you know, in so many other things I've seen, uh, TV shows, cartoon-type shows, a lot of stuff uh, with Khan, you know, yelling out. So it's... Uh, Good, 
good times. Um, the next clip that I'm going to play is an interesting one also. You know, the the other thing about this, ep- or this episode, I almost said, this uh, movie that's going on is, is Kirk. Uh, well, a lot with Kirk, but specifically Kirk's ability to... Um, defy the odds to to overcome impossible uh, you know things where it looks like there's there's no way you can win something and that's uh you know kind of comes out in this Kobayashi Maru test where you know cadets would go through this procedure where it was like they were you're completely surrounded your ship's being destroyed uh how do you get out of it how do you deal with that situation and Savik of course just her her logical Vulcan mind she just doesn't she doesn't know how to compensate for that and deal with it she's she just doesn't she can't see any other possibilities where kirk is always has the ability to find things and 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 sort of work the system i guess is the way to way to call it and he he has a plan here he's always got a plan he's always trying to come up with options and here is um we're on the genesis uh in that cavern that's made talking to uh and carol and the rest of them mccoy about uh, how uh, Captain Kirk uh, at the time dealt with, um, or Cadet Kirk, I guess, dealt with the Kobayashi Maru and how he's tricked Khan about uh, the status of the Enterprise. So listen to this. I would really like to know. Lieutenant, you are looking at the only Starfleet cadet who ever beat the no-win scenario. How? I reprogrammed the simulation so it was possible to rescue the ship. What? He cheated. I changed the conditions of the test. Got a commendation for original thinking. I don't like to lose. Then you never faced that situation. Faced death. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. Kirk to Spock. It's two hours. Are you ready? Right on schedule, Admiral. Just give us your coordinates and we'll beam you aboard. All right. I don't like to lose. We were immobilized. Yeah, it's a good scene. Another good uh, uh, insight into the way Kirk deals with things. Uh, a couple, a couple of points that I wanted to to say about that uh, situation there. Uh, one is Savick and and, and David. Uh, if you read the novelizations of the the movies, Star Trek Two, Star Trek Three. They actually end up forming kind of a little bit of a romantic relationship, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, David kind of takes on the role of the younger Kirk, and 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 that um, Savik is supposed to have some Romulan blood um, in her. Also, she's not a complete Vulcan, so that's part of the uh, the reasoning there. She's somewhat emotional too, just like uh, Mister Spock. So there's a little side side bit for that. Uh, a couple other things. The music of Star Trek II, I haven't talked about that much yet, by James Horner, who also did uh, for the movie Crawl, which I talked about in several podcasts back, one of my uh, favorite kind of uh, lost films of sci-fi fantasy, does a great, that music, excuse me, the music uh, for Star Trek II by James, uh, he's, uh, he really, really did a good job at creating a nautical kind of music feel, uh, very uplifting and dramatic and sweeping kind of score for this movie that that really fits the mood of it and i I like the way that they work it into like at the very end of that uh scene there where kirk is talking to spock on the communicator and it's like hey we we got a couple of tricks we're a little older and 
but we're uh, we know what we're doing, and we have a few tricks up our sleeves, and they and they fade into the music and all that. It's just it's really really good. The the other neat thing I liked about that, which they never really did a lot in either the movies or the TV show, is you you see in that scene where uh, Savick and Kirk are actually still sort of talking to each other as they're being beamed back up to the Enterprise, and I thought that was a really neat idea. You know, it gives you the idea that when somebody's transported through the the Enterprise transporter, that they're not really completely like you know wiped out of existence that they're almost in two places at the same time and they can actually almost continue to carry on a conversation and i like that effect the way they do that um in this film and it's it's never really that i can think of done again that i can that i can recall in any of the series maybe somebody listening to the show could shoot me an email if they think they've they've dealt with that in other um other situations i know in the first film in the star trek the motion picture there was a scene where the transporter malfunctions and you you see people that don't quite make it through perfectly in the transporter, and there's some screams and there's some things going on. But that's the only other time, I think, where you just don't see somebody come in, and until they completely uh, materialize, they can't move or talk or anything like that. Anyway, I thought that was a really neat effect here, and I, I like the way they did it. So, But now uh, Kirk is back up. The Enterprise is in better shape than they've let on to Khan, and so we get to the final battle. Now, this final battle is is, is well done also, of course, uh, great movie. Anyway, um, they they go into and they end up going to this Mutara Nebula, which the idea here is is that the both ships are kind of hurt anyway. But you get the idea the Enterprise is a little bit more hurt maybe than the Reliance is, and Kirk uh, sort of uh, baits again uh, Khan to follow them into the Nebula in order to to even the odds, is the way it's put it, put out. Because in the in the nebula, the the shields on the the ships will be kind of useless. Their weapons will just blast right through, and sensors won't really work very well. So what happens when they're in the nebula? The the odds become kind of a little more even, and then it turns into sort of a cat and mouse situation, where the more experienced commander, the one who understands starship tactics, movements, things like that, which of course is Captain Kirk, Admiral Kirk. Um, come into play, and of course he's able to beat Khan because of that. And um, we'll play a uh, clip. I'm going to play a clip now of. At first, it's um, not real obvious if, if Khan's going to follow the Enterprise into the into the Nebula. So of course Kirk, Kirk gets on the uh, the comm system and and hails Reliant and and baits Khan, and he knows that that Khan won't be able to resist to still trying to beat Kirk. So listen to this. Uhura, patch me in. Aye, sir. You're on, Admiral. This is Admiral Kirk. We tried it once your way, Khan. Are you game for a rematch? Khan. I'm laughing at the superior intellect. Full impulse power. No, sir. You have genesis. You can have whatever you... Full power. Admiral. I'll say this for him, he's consistent. So, of course, uh, Khan cannot resist uh, following Admiral Kirk into the nebula, which, of course, is a mistake, uh, but, you know, that's Khan. I just realized this this podcast is like an hour already. I hope uh, everyone's still with me. Maybe listen to it into two settings. I, I knew this was going to be a long one, talking about Star Trek, uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But um, hopefully with the holidays, people have a little more time. Maybe you'll be able to, won't, won't be so bad that it's a little longer. So 
we're probably going to push an hour and a half, maybe, I don't know, maybe not that long. Anyway, so now um, they're in both the Reliant and Enterprise are in the Nebula, and there is, um, you know, some some flying about and trying to get a, a, a lock or, or, a, or be able to find the other ship. And this turns into sort of a submarine situation, and, and they're just flying around, and Kirk drops down and above, and eventually gets the drop on Khan, of course, and then uh, takes him out. So we're going to play a clip for uh, that situation. Look sharp. Fire! So Kirk uh, has badly damaged the Reliant. Khan's uh, hurt, but he has one last uh, act that he can do, and he is the Genesis device controls are up on the bridge, and he sets to go off. And the Enterprise is really messed up at this point, too, has taken some fire, and they have a trouble getting out of there. They, they're they on, like, um, impulse power, and they're not moving off very fast at all. And, the, of course, the Genesis device and the wave it puts out is going to encompass this whole area, this whole nebula, and gases and matter that's in there, and the Enterprise needs to get away. Well, of course, what this turns into is Spock having to sacrifice himself to to save the the crew of the Enterprise, to save the ship. And this this is a completely logical and sensible move by, of course, Mr. Spock, and it, it's sort of hinted at all through the movie that he'll do anything to, to save both, uh, you know, his captain, his friend Kirk. And the, and the Enterprise, and, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. And it was really, really well done. And the final scene between uh, Kirk and Spock in, in the engine room area is pretty dramatic, and it still kind of gets to me every time I see it. So I'm going to play uh, some of that for you right now. So listen to that. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. I never took the Kobayashi Maru test. Until now. What do you think of my solution? a good uh good really really strong scene there and of course uh, star trek uh, 3 the search for spock he makes it uh makes it back basically but you know they, i think they did both of these movies real well in that regard i don't think it was cheap or anything like that and it was it was very well done so that's uh that's pretty much it for star trek 2 the wrath of khan 
excellent film, uh, my favorite of the Star Trek movies. I had a couple other audio clips, but I don't think they're critically important to play. Uh, you know, there's a little end part where where Kirk says he feels young. You know, the whole what's happened in the, in the in the film and what's happened in his life for this is, is sort of rejuvenated him, even though he lost his his best friend. Basically, he says that there's always possibilities and that uh, you know Spock is not gone McCoy says as long as you remember him and that uh, I think is true uh, you know in both film and real life so uh, if you haven't watched Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan uh, grab it uh, show somebody maybe who's never seen it before I think this is the kind of one of the one of the Star Trek films that that a lot of people can enjoy even if you're not really into into Star Trek so that's um, Wrath of Khan and I'll be right back, a quick little break here. We'll talk quickly about the uh, prop replica for this week, which is the uh, thermal detonators that were used in Star Wars uh, Return of the Jedi. Be right back. Okay, we're back. Um, well, I'm holding in my hand a, uh, a thermal detonator, like the bounty hunter Bosch, uh, who is really a Princess Leia in disguise in Return of the Jedi. These were um, these little small round devices uh, were first put out. The, the replicas, at least, were first put out by Master Replicas in late, uh, I think, two years ago, late 2003. Uh, they're they're real nice. They basically put out three different editions of it. There was a a weathered one. There was a weathered thermal detonator that was signed uh, by Carrie Fisher, which is one that I have. And there was also what they call as first built or a clean version uh, of the thermal detonator also put out, which I have one of those also. Now these use, um, they have two batteries. They take end uh, cells, uh, one and a half volts each. And what they do when you um, put the batteries in and you and you move the top of it just like they do in the movie it um, turns on some little flashing lights and a sound which is just like uh, was shown in Return of the Jedi which is very cool um, they, they're, they're fairly heavy they have a metal shell with a plastic inner area which the batteries go in and three little LED lights and a red one on the top when you when you pop it open. Looks just real authentic, like it did in the film. Uh, I put some pictures, of course, on my website so you can take a better look. They did a real nice job. They come in with uh, a small little uh, acrylic case to put them in. Nice plaques, as usual, for Master Replicas. These are long, again, sold-out items for, for the company. You can probably still find them on eBay occasionally. I think they were a couple hundred dollars. But um, real nice, uh, real nice job on these. They're they're amazing for at least uh, to me. They're they're smaller than they would appear. But I think Carrie Fisher, if you look in the movie, she has fairly small hands herself, so they look maybe a little larger on screen than they probably are in a you know at least in my big old hands. So the weathered one's real neat. They have some burn marks on it, and um, you know corrosion. I guess the way it's supposed to look if it's been beat up and used. A lot of the uh, in the original trilogy films, a lot of the you know the props, blasters, lightsabers, these things all had sort of a weathered, beat up look. The robots all did, 
and that that is translated to these um, props real real well also the clean one is a kind of a bright chrome finish i'll put pictures up of both types excuse me on my website and you can get a good look at it so uh but uh master replicas again comes through they uh they actually just announced uh, i i posted it on the collectible section of the forums on the treks and sci-fi website they just announced their their replica list what they're producing for 2006 and the one thing i was going to mention on today's podcast is something i'm really excited about probably going to cost uh, a small fortune but the master replicas next year is going to put out a studio scale not still sure exactly how big that will be but they're going to put out a studio scale version of the original series enterprise model probably guessing it's going to be like about a three foot model or so hopefully with lights maybe some sound effects who knows details are still not out there on it but that is going to just be awesome i i can't wait for that piece uh i have to find a spot to keep it or put it but um there are a couple of companies that have done that before especially one in a, a few years ago called unobtainium which was the name of the company which is kind of funny because it, it, that model was almost unobtainable there a few got produced they were really cool but they had a lot of trouble the engines sagged and they did not uh a lot of those items didn't come out or last very long. They had trouble with the um, the paint job on it um, deteriorating over time. A lot, a lot of issues with that. But with Master Replicas making these uh, Enterprise models, uh, I, I think that there's no question that it'll be uh, really, really well done. There's a lot of new lightsaber Star Wars pieces. If anyone's interested in collectible sections, take a look on the forums, collectible area, and the whole Master Replicas 2006 list, which is, gosh, there's probably at least... A couple of dozen or more new items they're going to produce for next year so uh looking forward to a lot of those but i think that's going to just about do it for the podcast uh i apologize that it went ran a little longer again i i thought that was going to be the case with talking about wrath of khan this week but uh it's one of my favorites i i really really enjoy the film every time i pull it out and watch it usually at least once or twice a year it's got a lot in there characters uh are real real well done and, and it's just a good story and real well done show so hats off to you guys that worked on wrath of khan out there i'm sure you're listening to my podcast right yeah uh-huh so anyway um depending on when you guys download this i'm going to probably upload it tomorrow which will be christmas eve but I, i'd like to again just wish anyone out there uh listening to the show a happy holiday season whether it's christmas uh hanukkah whatever you might be celebrating uh, or just the the gimme holiday which a lot of people seem to look at it as a i need to you need to give me something what'd you give me uh, i don't know what do you give me uh, but uh whatever holidays you're celebrating now or just seeing family and friends i hope you're having a great time enjoy it relax i know i'm going to for the next week or so eat some nice food see some people uh that i haven't seen in a while and just just have some nice times and maybe work on the website and podcast some more maybe some mini casts over the next week but uh Probably the show will get up on December 24th. You'll be listening to it uh, whenever you, you know, in between opening presents on Christmas Day, I'm sure. So I'm going to end the show a little differently this uh, this week. I'm going to play um, a couple of things. I'm going to play, so it's going to make it even a little longer. I'm going to play the end of Wrath of Khan with Spock's uh, uh, saying the, the main uh, title, like Kirk says in the old series, I'm going to play that, and then I'm going to follow that up with a little uh, jingle that I found uh, on a, a Christmas uh, card that I got. So uh, I'll play both those kind of back-to-back. Uh, just want to again say um, 
I'm at treksf at gmail.com to get a hold of me or treksf.com for the website or Treks in Sci-Fi, treksf on Skype. Uh, again, thanks everyone for listening to the show. Have a great holiday season. See you in another week. Oh, next week, next week I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to talk about next week a, um, it's going to be a lost sci-fi television show for me. I did a movie one. I'm going to do a TV one and it may be limited more in clips that I can find. But I'm going to talk about a few shows, uh, older sci-fi TV shows that I've enjoyed in the past. Some I have on videotape. Uh, not many of these are even out on DVD yet. Some of them are. But just going to mention maybe four or five, maybe six or so different uh, TV shows, uh, science fiction related shows that I've enjoyed. And maybe that you guys either know about or don't know about, but something to seek out. Uh. So with that, this is Rico signing off for the week. Have a good week, everyone. And enjoy the holiday season. So, again, we're going to play a little uh, Spock uh, uh, dialogue here, music, followed by a little Jingle Bells. Bye-bye. Space, the final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. This has been a Rick Dosti podcast production.